Don't turn it off now. You need this stuff. Tampa Bay's Tantalk Radio Network. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. This is a squirrel mill, or speaking English, a high-speed nuthouse. A mill is a hot rod or souped-up jalopy, which was once just a car. A squirrel is a space kid who can't get off the earth, but is always flying. The result? Well, it should happen to all Sunday-type drivers. And another red-blooded American boy is a victim of his own pistons, a healthy thyroid, and Yankee ingenuity. Crime does not pay, but that's not what this lecture in the Coral Gables, Florida police station is all about. These boys aren't criminals, they're just show-offs, squirrels. And the point is, they really have something good to show off. That's the story behind the Ramblers Road Club of Miami. Thousands of boys like these might have picked up a cane pole and gone fishing, played sandlot baseball or church gym basketball. Instead, in a country with most of the world's automobiles and most of the world's highways, they became interested in engines, camshafts, and wheels. Hot rodding as a sport was born. The Ramblers, under the leadership of their own elected officers and the sponsorship of local police, regulate members and see to it that unregulated squirrels, traffic violators, are disciplined. Many motorists believe the hot rodder is a blue flame demon who would rather run you off the road than help you get on it. The Ramblers are changing that. Because it makes a good impression, and because their hands itch to get into the works, any works, the Ramblers are now known as Knight Errants of the Highway. This hot rod Galahad not only rescues a lady in distress, but gets in a solid public relations lick, too. A hot rod usually starts out as a clunker. To the uninitiated, that's probably what all hot rods seem. Sway back jalopies ready for the automotive version of the glue factory. In making an honest mill out of it, the boys make some solid mechanical judgments. Then in goes the weekly allowance, the spare time earnings, and the parts of several other clunkers. It's a form of cannibalism. So much for looks. Where in another age, these boys might be learning the grip on a tennis racket, here they get the feel of a chain hoist. In another sport, it might be footwork and form. In this sport, it's gear ratios and power factors, transmissions and carburetors. A bigger and more powerful engine goes on a small car chassis, and this car gets a four-pot alky setup, which means four carburetors that mix alcohol with the gasoline for extra zip. Ordinary cars have only one, and the alky, if any, is sometimes found in the driver. These boys put the stimulant where it will do more good, in the engine. 
A dashboard tachometer checks the RPMs, and the big echo cans on the exhaust give extra speed. And it must be admitted, some extra noise. It may be weeks or it may be months, but here it is. The birth, or should we say rebirth, of a hot rod. A cam-jamming, petrol-perking, rejuvenated road jumper. And a pretty neat piece of transportation, too. The question now is, where does this souped-up power buggy go? To the streets and highways, where the annual traffic death rate climbs year by year? Not in Coral Gables, at any rate. It's out to the drag strip, a section officially set aside for time trials at specified times. This is the gathering place of the intelligentsia of intensified internal combustion, the Carburetor Cowboys Promised Land. It's an ironclad regulation that all cars pass inspection on general condition, wheels, tires, and brakes, or be ruled off the track. Hubcaps come off lest they fly off and hit spectators. Only then does the mill get a number that means it is safe. Even then, human error is always possible. An ambulance and the club's sponsor stand by. Gasoline is spiked with alcohol, and the carburetor cocktail is stirred. And now comes the big moment, the drag. and sports cars, as well as reformed jalopies, compete against time over the quarter-mile drag course. These are chop-down models, a term that pretty much explains itself. A safety bar across the top protects the driver in the event of a rollover. There's a safety belt in this breezy job, too. The premium is on acceleration. The foot must come off the gas pedal at the finish line, but the electronic timers may already have registered 100 miles an hour. Thousands of youngsters like these have their fingers in cylinders, their noses tipped with grease. Harem scarum, they may seem to some observers as they calm the road, spurn rubber from tires. Nevertheless, drag strips like this are drawing more and more of them into healthy and sporting competition. The former traffic violator becomes an amateur engineer. The drag strip a proving ground of young ideas. It may be in the end that the quest for speed is merely another quest for progress, for perfection. The holy grail of these hot rod Galahads. And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Button up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hey, this is Jimmy Shine from SoCal Speed Shop and the host of Car Warriors. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't touch that dial. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Vision Cars. Remember your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tantalk, 1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you miss any of our past shows, you can go to NostalgicRadioCars.com. And see my work, my handiwork. See your handiwork, yes. Well, hey, we have a very, very... Special guest coming on this evening. Um, we're on a, kind of on a nostalgic hot rod thing here right now. And um, back in 1973, uh, my first car was an Austin Healey. So I was kind of like, you know, a sports car kind of guy. But I like muscle cars. Okay, when I say muscle cars, you know, kind of performance GT cars, more or less GT racing stuff. 
But I also, because I grew up in Northern California, I was kind of like uh, bitten by the hot rod bug because hot rods were just everywhere, especially in, in California. They were just like, you know, 10 of them on our street, you know, every other house. So uh, my first car, obviously the Healy didn't last very long, six days and some little little sweetheart decided to cut me off, piled it up down here on Clearwater Beach on the bridge. So the next car that I was going to buy was a 69 Shelby convertible. GT500, and I know a friend of mine is listening right now, and he knows exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about a 69 GT500 Shelby factory four-speed 428 turbojet car. Beautiful car, stunning. And that car at that time was Royal Maroon with a white interior. I used to see it running around all the time. Well, the guy left here, from graduated from Clearwater High School, and was going to Florida Atlantic, which is in South Florida. Right, Bobby? Down there by uh, Palm Boca Beach? Boca Raton, yes. Boca, okay. So he happened to be, and I used to see the car in summertime all the time, and I chased this car. Never find out who it was. I did find out who the guy was. So one day I'm sitting there, and he, <coughs> the day that I piled up my Healy, he comes rolling into Clearwater High School, of all things, to go visit some of his friends because he's on, like, some hiatus at school. I came flying out of small engines class because we had small engines back then. And I ran through the parking lot and I said, hey, man, is your name John Feely? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go, man, is this your Shelby? He goes, yeah, is it for sale? Well, yeah. And uh, anyway, long and short of it is, is we went to go make a deal. But the problem was in 1972, this is December of 72, and I'd only had my driver's license, not even two months, um, with one crash on record. Okay, not really my fault, but since I was the only person there, I kind of got charged with uh, reckless driving, which was six points back in the day. And uh, because the other car cut me off, turned off, and kept going, I spun around, hit the bridge, and then my poor little Healy was scattered all over the place, my little 3000. And, and uh, somewhere there's a reel to reel that played at WTAN. It was a traffic report that probably had your uh, crash on it. <laughs> probably had my crash. Yeah, you never know. And uh, But at any rate, uh, so the insurance on that. Now, the car was only 2500 bucks back then, which was a pretty decent deal for a 69 Shelby. That was really nice shape. The only thing wrong with it is it had 69 Mustang GT wheels on it. The original um, Shelby wheels, five spokes, were missing for some strange reason. Anyway, the car was really cool when he had 20-some-odd thousand miles on it. Pretty low mileage piece. I mean, close to 30, I think, is what it was. But at any rate, the insurance was $2,500 a year. That was insanity. Twenty-five. Think about that. Twenty-five hundred dollars a year. I'm sixteen. I make a buck fourteen an hour. No way. I could afford the car because I would work. You know, most kids are doing dope and getting drugged and stoned up and messed up and stuff like that. I had to work. My mom and dad had a motel on the beach, and so we worked. So I had an allowance. So I had money saved up, and I wanted the car. So I worked for it. So twenty-five hundred bucks really wasn't a ton of money back then. But the insurance twenty-five hundred dollars a year after year after year that would have been a lot of money. So needless to say, I didn't get that car. But I did end up with a 57 Thunderbird, and it had a four-speed in it, and it was kind of edgy. So I went and bought, me and my buddy Rock, he's probably listening too, we bought four cans of Rust-Oleum spray paint, okay, and we used to build models as kids, okay, so spray painting a big car was no different than a model. So we went to the hardware store in Clearwater Beach, bought four cans of spray paint, and the guy says, are you going to wet sign it? And I go, what's wet sanding? He goes, well, that's it cuts better. It's when you use sandpaper and dip it in water and cut. I said, oh, okay. So, well, guess what? It rained that afternoon, so we ended up wet sanding it anyway. And then that night, this was on a Saturday, and then uh, and then I had to work, obviously. And the next day, we had to go do our little usual beach duties and stuff like that. So that night, Sunday night, I stayed up all night long, dried that car, sanded it, smoothed it, and painted it, Rust-Oleum primer. 
Here it is, 19, that was 1973, February of 1973. This is February of 2022. That's 49 years ago. I still have that car and looks exactly the way it did the day I did that car, other than the pinstripe peeled off, which was red pinstripe, so it looked like the Batmobile. So I am an old-school hot rodder by heart. It had Magnums on it at one point. It had American Torque Thrust on it. It had Keystone Classics on it. You know, all that. But it was a four-speed with a wide block with a 312 in it, old-school hot rod, no floor, I mean, no carpeting, you know, just a big hole in the floor with a shifter hanging out of it. And that's just kind of what we did. And you, know, you went to the local, 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 junk, local junkyards to grab a part or two, you know, if you needed it and stuff. So that's what we did back in the day. So my guest this evening, Bob, why don't you go ahead and call our guest and get him on the phone right now, is a very special guest. He's an alumni guest. He's been around. He's been around for 100 years, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this gentleman is a legend in the world of hot rodding. He's a legend in the world of uh, racing, drag racing, Indy cars, NASCARs. He has built parts. He builds parts. He builds one, really one important part, you know, that kind of makes a car do what it does. You know, a car has is a, 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 an internal combustion engine is a suck pump, okay? It's basically an air pump. And basically, it has an intake power compression and boom, uh, stroke. And in order to make that all work, you have to have this little thing called a bump stick, or commonly referred to as a camshaft. And it opens and closes these little valves, which lets fuel in, lets exhaust out, and makes and completes the process. So, this gentleman uh, is a pretty amazing guy, and uh, he just celebrated his hundred-year anniversary. And I am delighted to welcome back to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, the legendary Cam Father himself, Ed Iskandarian. Ed, how are you this evening? I'm pretty good, thank you. And uh, ready to have a little chat. Ready to have a little chat. Well, first of all, I want to say happy birthday. It's a little late, it's belated, but you've got a 101 birthday coming up here in July, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, Ed, tell us what the secret to longevity is. Well, lots of hot sauce and uh, chili peppers and garlic. I like all those spicy foods. Well, I don't know if they do any good, but I like them. <clears throat> well, then that's interesting because I was. Uh, Reading a little article, Matt Stone, I guess, helped you uh, put together a book called The History of Hot Rodding? Yeah. And uh, tell us about that book and and what that was like sitting here with Matt and uh, putting together, basically, uh, The History of Hot Rodding. Well, he came to me and told me that uh, the the book company wanted to uh, pay them so much money to uh, do a book about me. So we he'd come once or twice a week, and we'd talk, and he'd record, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, after about a year, he said, well, I'm done. I said, oh, I, I thought that would be here for another year or so. No. And he uh, he added some, filled in the rest of the book, and, uh, and pretty soon the book was out. Uh, it was... Uh, it was really funny, and then one day he's talking, 
See, at one time he did some work with uh, the English uh, racing driver, very famous, uh, Jackie Hicks or something like that. And, and he told me uh, the word uh, when, you, when you're watching the cars racing out there, you say smooth, smooth. Wow. And then a late word came after that. Well, I was very interested. What What's the word that comes after that? Because that's what uh, uh, Parnelli Jones used to say oh. at the racetrack when he was watching the cars go around. He'd say, smooth, smooth. And uh, so he told me the second word was smooth is fast. Oh, that makes sense. Anyway, uh, he took some lessons from uh, on driving. And that's the so smooth is fast out of the racetrack when you're going around circles. Anyway, uh, you want to hear some stories about the uh, funny things that happened. Yeah, tell us some funny stories about the early days. Yes, absolutely. My listeners would be, just be tickled. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. As you know, the Chrysler came out in 1951 with the Hemi. And uh, it didn't do much good for a passenger car because uh, it was heavy and expensive to build. But when they got in the wrecking yards, uh, it made a great drag racing motor, especially with nitromethane. So uh, uh, that was, uh, was the kind of standard engine for, for uh, nitro dragsters. Uh-huh. Well, one day... Uh, at Lions Drag Strip, we noticed that uh, Greer Black and Perdome used to go do, do a lot of winning there. And some days they'd go down but wouldn't come back. And we found out, by God, they had a key to the gate at the far end and it got out on a different boulevard in case it was something embarrassing, you know. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, in, engine builders, uh, they like to tease one another. And uh, here's what happened. Uh, 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 Keith Black used to brag that in his whole life of engine building, he had never thrown a connecting rod in his whole life. And one day, uh, Dave Zucco, an engine builder at the San Fernando Valley, was very famous, too. And uh, there it was, uh, the Gridjack and Perdome car uh, had a, a hole in the pan, oil was coming out, a connecting rod was sticking out. Sure enough, it finally threw a rod. And uh, so Dave Zucco says, hey, Kay Keith, I thought you'd never threw a rod in your whole life. Look at that. And he said, well, finally, after five years, I finally threw a rod on that engine. Oh, yeah, five years, huh? Well, except that only four of those years was with white sidewall tires and uh, automatic transmission. <laughs> in a passenger car. That's what it was in a passenger car. Anyway... There was another funny story, uh, uh, and let's see, uh, well, there's lots of funny stories, but uh, maybe you can think of one. 
Well, I'll tell you what. How about I ask you a couple questions? Why don't you tell us early on, you know, when your 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 first race car or your first high rod was a Model T, correct? Oh yeah, I okay. started with a Model T, and then in in nineteen thirty three or four, you could pick one up sometimes for five dollars or ten dollars, and sitting in a vacant lot, it wouldn't run, but uh, we drag it home. And the older fellas from the Bungholders Club would help us get it going. And I was lucky. There's two guys from the Bungholders Club in my neighborhood. And we learned off those older fellas. Cause, and they had a, for top speed, they raced at Muroc Dry Lake, only 100 miles from Los Angeles, out in the desert, you know. Uh-huh. And then... Uh, then these little car clubs that we had then were nothing more than uh, places to hang out together and with Model T's, Model A's, and a very seldom uh, 32V8. Uh, and we'd uh, go places like the mountains or uh, Big Bear Lake or someplace, you know, 50-mile trip or something. And one time we went all the way to Ensenada, Mexico is back again. Bud Hines was the uh, president of the Bugholders Club. Uh, it's got a funny name, and later on we'll tell you how that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, now let me ask you this. Now, I was reading, you were messing around with a some sort of a trick overhead valve cylinder head for your four-cylinder car. So yeah. what, what people don't realize is really... Engines, camshafts, all this stuff was actually fairly well underway being developed and experimenting with back in the days. Why don't you share some of those stories? Because most people don't realize uh, how advanced uh, engines really were back then. Yeah, and when we build a build a car, we'd get odd ideas from the older sellers that had already built up hot rods and uh, ask them where to get this part, where to get that part at certain junkyards and so forth, and. Uh, uh, so we'd get ideas from what the other guys had built and throw something together on our own. And, uh, and an, oh, yeah. So the 32 Ford V8, uh, all, 30, all uh, Ford V8s got hot in the summertime. And uh, uh, at least three different builders of cylinder heads made F heads for the uh, model for the 32 Ford and later head V8 head V8 engine and uh, so the exhaust was still in the block no no now the exhaust is in overhead and the intake is in the block it was just the opposite of what it should be if you're going to run an F head okay but I found out that uh, Rex A head uh, an old racing guy, uh, for 30, $21, he would, maybe it was $26, he would sell me uh, a set of uh, Maxi MAXI heads, uh, and I couldn't believe it. They needed reworking, and I had them heated red hot downtown by Arco Welding, and they filled in the combustion chambers and gave me high compression. And uh, I started to grind the head out, 
I said, gee, I better go see Winfield, the famous Winfield, was not too far away in Glendale. And and I knew I needed a special cam. It was half overhead and half flathead. And he uh, he was very kind to me and let me uh, see his cam grinder that he built himself. And I was fascinated by that cam grinder. Little did I know that later on, after the war, I might be trying the, the grind cams myself. And he would have helped me if, if <laughs> that he said later on. Yeah, I didn't know it at the time. But anyway, uh, these cylinder heads, uh, the real reason that the flatheads got hot in summertime was not the long exhaust passages going through the block. It was the... Uh, the fact that the water pumped it through one, two cylinders and out the center to the back of the radiator and, and let those three and four cylinders cook in the back. Oh, really? Uh, that was the real reason. And uh, three different people made the mistake of making overhead valve cylinder heads that really didn't do any good. They weren't any better than a flathead, as far as I could tell. And uh, let me see... Uh, so uh, maybe you know about straight uh, eight engines and straight six engines. Yep, a little bit. Go ahead. They have a water distribution tube, but it looks like it's scabbard off of a horse, off a sword, uh-huh. off a fighting sword, and it has holes that it gave gives equal equal water flow to every cylinder at the bottom, and if you take it out equally at the top, why that you got good circulation to all cylinders. Yeah, so that was an interesting thing. Uh, but anyway, uh, do you know that, as a, like on the flathead uh, Ford V8, it, it had the exhaust right up there by the carburetor, and that's what Ford did. He cleaned up the uh, Ford V8 engine by putting the exhaust to the outside, and the engine turned out to be nice and clean looking and all the Cadillacs from 37 on the flathead one were uh, the exhaust was right up there by the carburetor it was real hot up there real hot spot well anyway uh, let me tell you about the time uh, so uh, after the war that's when I uh, decided when I all the all these uh, dry lake racers uh, learned a lot during the war working on government equipment, and uh, they were all ready to go back to racing at the dry lake when they got home after the war. So uh, they uh, had learned a lot, you know, during the war on, uh, on mechanical things, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, Machining and things like that, so they became pretty good uh, tool and right. tool tool tradespeople. But anyway, uh, these t- these guys that would build a top fuel uh, dragster for, with Nitro, uh, they'd buy a Chrysler and and we usually give give them a free cam. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Because some because some might be smart enough to go extra fast, and we could advertise them. You know, so we 
they didn't really have to buy their cam. Although Garlis didn't know he, he was back in Florida, he didn't know he'd get the cam free. <laughs> <laughs> but later on, he got free cam, of course. Well, now tell us a little bit about how that worked. Okay, so basically, when you first started, when you got out of the war, and you started, you saw there was a, de- a, a need and a demand for camshafts because you needed camshafts for your hot rods and your friends. And Winfield, the man back in the day, the, cam- the camshaft yeah. man, couldn't keep up with the demand. So you kind of like filled in there. So, but a lot of times you couldn't get yeah. core. So what you did is you basically. Uh, welded them up and kind of reground them. So tell us where you guys came up, how you came up with the the idea of regrinding cams and coming up with the right lift, the right duration to get those engines to breathe and uh, and 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 spit out the exhausts as well as they did. Well, I guess in those days there wasn't any, uh, except for Winfield, there wasn't really. Uh, Anyone that really knew his stuff about racing engines uh-huh. was probably one of the top ten in the whole world, uh, either converting a passenger car engine into a racing engine or building a racing engine itself. So, uh, so he uh, he made cams. He started making cams for his motorcycle. In 1912, when he was 12 years old, uh, and he did it all, all by hand. You know, what, there was still going to be one or two lobes, and uh, so that's the way he got started. Until he built his old cam grinder, which he showed me later on, and uh, <coughs> he was uh, so well informed about all aspects of uh, a racing engine, yeah. And uh, let's see. So, when you were grinding these cams back in the day for your fellow hot rodding friends, did you have flow benches, or how did you test? How did you come up with the grinds that that worked efficiently to give optimum power? We knew some fundamentals, all right. Okay. You can buy an engineering book; it'll give you the fundamentals. And uh, we knew that uh, if you make the duration or the longer event, of you uh going to pick up top speed and lose low speed. So every time you go a little longer on the cam, you're going to pick up top speed and lose a, more, a little more bottom, mid-range and bottom torque, you know. Okay. So... Uh, and we knew fast action was uh, a good idea, and it worked good on the flathead because the uh, the valve train was so light, it would tolerate that uh, fast action. So uh, after after remembering how Elbrock and how Vic El, uh, Winfield built that cam grinder, I built a cam grinder the way he did. And now I had to try it out, and I had to make the first master. And uh, I said, gee, uh, I look in the book, and I, it tells you how to do it with a certain system of radiuses. And I could I could do that with my uh, little experience at the machine shop. Uh-huh. And I left off the clearance trap because that was going to be a little more complicated. 
complicated. And by golly, I had a noisy cam. Oh, boy, you could hear. <laughs> I, I sold my first cam to a kid building his first 32 Ford V8. And he, uh, he got it running, and he, I hear it coming a half a block away. Happy noise. Oh, my goodness, I was ashamed of that. <laughs> I said, I'll get around to fixing that later. But And then, believe it or not, I got a call. Uh, well, a hot rod, uh, uh, well, the first hot rod show took place in the Los Angeles National Guard Armory at Expedition Park, 1949. And by golly, uh, uh, that went over pretty good. And the guys, Bob Barsky was putting it on, and and the, the original guys that started the Hot Rod Magazine were there working with Barsky, bringing in good cars to, for the show, for the Hot Rod show, and renting booths to the speed shop and things like that. And uh, by God, they, they, he heard that they started a magazine, want to start a magazine. And just by, for fun, he tells them, boys, I hear we... We have a magazine, too, since you work for me and you thought of this idea. But he wasn't really going to put anybody in, but he was just joking. But they did come out with that magazine, and by golly, it got back east and spread hot riding throughout the United States and the rest of the world, in a way. So, uh... Well, when that magazine came out for the second issue, you actually were one of the first guys to put an ad in there, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. I, I missed the first issue in Hot Rod because I didn't know what was coming out. Reggie Slimmer's car was on that uh, cover, and he was the fastest at the Dry Lakes in those days. Uh-huh. Great guy. And uh, so, by God, I only had that one noisy cam, and I got... And I put a two-inch ad in that uh, magazine, uh, Hot Rod magazine, second issue. Yeah. And it got back to the NASCAR guys who were racing on dirt tracks with with old Fords. Uh-huh. Uh, 37, 38 Fords, stuff like that. And the guy called up. He was uh, one of the solar guys, evidently. And he saw my ad. He was told that if you call California, you can buy speed parts, cams, and things like that. And by golly, he ordered two cams by airmail. And I, uh, that's the only cam I had, that noisy cam. And I sent them to him. And by God, they started ordering over and over again. Some of the other teams that saw them pick up speed and where they used to run, uh, and they started found out that there and they bought cams too they told them where to get them and uh, so my noisy cam was good on the racetrack it had extra torque down low for passing cars and you could work your way to the front and maybe win the race if you're lucky yeah so that's uh, so that was an easy place for me to start with my noisy 
Damn. <laughs> Nor as you can. What was it like working with guys, I mean, in the early days, I mean, like Winfield and, and Edelbrock, you know, because he was basically Mr., uh, you know, carburetor and intake man. So what was it like working with those guys, and what kind of collaboration did you have? Yeah, we used to, they were, we used to admire them, and uh, they were old <coughs> guys, and uh, I remember Edelbrock, uh, he, he went 122 at the dry lake. And the fastest of all was 140, a little over 140, with a, uh, it was streamlined, a four-cylinder Chevy, an old four-cylinder Chevy. It was a carpenter named Bob Rufi owned it, and it had a windshield cam, of course. And so anyway, we, uh, we uh, I don't know how we got started here, but. Well, we're talking about some of the guys you worked with, Edelbrock and Winfield, you know, and, and, and how did you guys, you know, collaborate a little bit and the, talk? The factory, the factory, uh, they're all fake uh, engineering and so forth, but when it comes to racing, they, they look to California for part two, and the first thing you know, the overhead valve engine come out, uh-huh. and uh, when they wanted to put them in NASCAR or race them, by God, they uh they they send a whole engine to Hot Rod Magazine or direct to Vic Edelbrock to have him hop it up and see what he could do with it. Well, he'd make an intake manifold uh, for dual carburetors or more, and he would uh, tell the cam grinders uh, submit a cam and uh, whoever wins wins. Uh, if your cam is good, we'll show you what it'll do. And by golly. Uh, I was lucky. I lucked out. He liked my cam the best. And uh, it got into the magazine and spread about how to hop up a, uh, well, it was a Ford, uh, the Chevy. Uh-huh. And then the Ford, wide block Ford came after that. Right. And uh, and then, of course, now these overhead engines uh, had a very soft cam made out of cast iron that would wear out if you hopped up the Went to higher lifts or more duration, more stress on the cam. Uh-huh. So Chet Herbert, God bless him, uh, in a wheelchair, by God, he uh, made rotor camshafts for these uh, do V8 engines. And uh, he could make one or two uh, a day, probably. Or and... Uh, so they took over uh, the overhead took over from the flathead with all with extra speed and power, and uh, so I wasn't ready for roller cams yet. So I said, you know, this camshaft is okay for, except the lobes are too soft. Well, how about hard facing? By golly, you. Hang on, you're you're hitting the buttons there, Ed. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> we could make six or eight a day. Uh huh. And by and feel the demand because everyone was getting a new V8 uh, overhead valve V8. Uh huh. So uh, and uh, by God, I couldn't believe it, but in 1963, I think it was, uh, we won. Uh, 23 classes at NHRA, and in those days, uh, they were older-fashioned cars. They 
And later on, it had become late coupe, late coupe uh, was a thing to move. But they, these were older cars, uh, many classes. Uh-huh. Uh, so anyway, that, uh, so we, because uh, we, could, we could fill the market with uh, a million six cans a day or eight cans a day in some kind. And Edelbrock, I remember he had to make five. Oh, they, by the way, when the factory came out with these racing parts, they had to be available to the general public, and there had to be, uh, according to NASCAR, at least 500 in stock. Uh-huh. And that, that, so that Edelbrock had to make 500 manifolds, and I had to make $500, 500 cams, because I would... Uh, Deliver him to Edelbrock, and he would put it in the package with his manifolds and carburetors and so forth, and send back to. Yeah, that was. Uh... Ed, and let me ask you this: How important is the camshaft, cylinder heads? An engine block. In other words, where I'm going with this is, you know how everybody's talking about, oh, yeah, you can't make an internal combustion real efficient. You can't get great gas mileage. We got to go to electric. We got to go to this. We got to go to that. Well, I say phooey. So you tell me, you are the man, the camshaft, the cylinder heads, it's an air pump. Can we get an engine with the right kind of engine components to be as efficient as any electric motor out there where it actually doesn't where it actually runs really really good doesn't use a lot of fuel and puts out a lot of performance well uh, they've got I, I think they've gone almost as far as you need to go with the gasoline engine and i know they're talking electric at in detroit but uh yeah they've taken the gasoline engine about as far as it pays to go uh, uh you could do small refinement but though that it's pretty darn efficient the way it is now. The LS and the new Ford and the Chevy engines are really efficient. Uh, so where I'm going with this though is that you know with all you know back in the old days we had a carburetor, you had a set of points. You were real good friends with Stu Hilburn, you know Hilburn fuel injection yeah. back in the day. I mean, I'm sure you can tell us some stories there. You were friends with Smokey Eunuch, with Mickey Thompson. I mean, legends. But all these guys experimented with engines that were basically internal combustion engines with no electronics and no pollution, and they ran extremely efficient. They had to. They were race motors, and they could be tuned to be ru- to run on the street. So tell us, and all honestly, can we make them? Well, we weren't we were interested in saving fuel. We were interested in making horsepower. Well, yeah. Didn't care about fuel economy, uh, but uh, so we did the best we could we had, and uh, of course nitromethane came into the picture too. Okay. And I remember uh, uh, at one time uh, Wally Park tried to ban nitro and not let them run it as back, but it was such a cloud cloud pleaser that uh, he had to go to it finally anyway. Yeah. The nitro methane, yeah. Well, now, we know that, yeah, there's, okay, so, and, 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 and nitro is like, uh, 
extremely explosive. But so we're talking also in terms of efficiency, you know, the fuel itself, which is very important. So where I'm going with this is the internal combustion engine, you know, with the right air, the right fuel, the right cams, the right timing, the right compression. Yeah. You know, you can get yeah. those engines to run extremely efficient as a as a day to you know a day in day out motor versus obviously you can make maximum power in in racing which they're still doing to this day if you you know if you follow racing at all so I mean what are, what are these dragsters now they're what close to ten twelve thousand horsepower uh, yeah. the top fuel you know, the funniest thing is when they say that they don't realize that the horsepower formula is. Uh, 33,000 pounds lifted one foot in one minute. It has to be one minute. Why, those nitro cars only run for five seconds. So they, when they say they're putting out 12,000 horsepower, they're only putting out about 1,000 horsepower. Oh, okay. They didn't go a full minute. They didn't go a full minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, because uh, that, that horsepower formula is a uh, is the amount of work done. That's the amount of work that a horse can do in one minute. And okay. So, uh, yeah, that was that. So that's a comical thing. So. Uh, All right. So. Tell you. Go ahead. Oh, uh, one time uh, in San Francisco, uh, one of our uh, the guy that runs one of our camps. Uh, 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 we we sent the latest cam, which Caramacini is like this cam. It was a soft action, high RPM cam. And he sent it back, and he said, that cam is junk. I don't like it. He did something wrong, evidently. So uh, he went back to his old cam. And later on, he broke his cam. And uh, he had a race coming up real quick, and he needed a cam by uh, Greyhounds uh, in, in in California. That's the fastest way to get it there. Uh-huh. And we we couldn't get him another cam, except the cam he turned back and didn't like. So we ground the back off. We, we said, we're going to get in trouble. So we ground the back and put the ball and we held our breath. Right. We waited until the Monday morning came, when, which is after the race. Right. And he, and he called up and he said, you dirty guys, you dirty guys. Oh, we're going to catch that. I said, didn't run very good. Are you kidding? He says, I took top time, top ET, top eliminator. You guys have been holding out on me. <laughs> and to uh, Caramacini, not realizing this is the one he didn't like. <laughs> yeah, but he had done something wrong. Well, that was really funny. Yeah, that was okay. Well, that that's that's cool. What was it like? Work of all the people back in the day, early pioneers, and besides Winfield and Edelbrock, who else was really stood out, and who did you have a good relationship with? Oh, oh, I I, I love guys like uh, Chris Boyd, who helped Edel, uh, who was a big big help to. 
You pushing the buttons there, Ed? <laughs> yeah, Dave, Dave Zuchel is another great engine builder. And, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, Ted, Ted Bribery became my, uh, uh, became my uh, factory rep- representative back east. We'd go back on trips for about a month sometime, and my, my accountant said, how does this man live back there with such a small bank account there's hardly any hotel bills here i said well they like it because they when he calls on them at the speed shop they ordinarily don't like visitors or uh, uh but but when they find he runs at bonneville runs a car here at bonneville oh they they won't let him go to the hotel they have to come stay at their house Ah, <laughs> so that's why he had that small bills uh, on his uh, expense account, and uh, that was Ted Fry, yeah, and uh, and but then. So one of the most notorious guys, the drag racers uh, that you worked with, was very well known. Was Grumpy Bill Jenkins? He ran your ISKI cams, right? You had a good relationship with him. Yeah, yeah, he did a lot of experimenting. Grumpy did. Did he? Yeah, we worked with him. And uh, and then of course we uh, went with uh, Scotty Finn's car, his chassis. Uh huh. Got sold to Bedwell, and uh, 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 Cook and Bedwell. I remember Emory Cook. Uh, he he used to drive one of the old Speedport Roasters, at which were really ahead of their time. I mean. That's the way the car we went, but it would, well, wheelbase was longer, of course, now. But anyway, he, uh, he, uh. What era would you say was, for you, the most fun? So out of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, yeah. 80s, what was the most exciting era for Isky Cams and Ed Iskandarian? I guess it would be in the 60s. 60s, okay. In the 60s, yeah. That was when the most exciting. Of course, I was so surprised that I could bluff my way into the cam camp business and get away with it. <laughs> Little as I knew about it at the time. But but the thing was simple at the time. It was only as Simple valve train, and it was very easy uh, to understand. Yeah, that's what that's what helped a lot. And I was bluffing my way in, and I was so surprised that the guys liked my stuff, especially NASCAR when they got on the circle track and you needed a little a better bottom end and a more more mid range power too. Because uh, a lot of the cans were long and uh, had top top head power, but they lacked power in the mid range. They, they weren't really made for the circle track racing. Yeah, at the time. So. Uh, well, Ed, and, uh, go ahead. Some of our customers give us the best ideas too. Uh, I remember Scotty Finn says one day, "Why don't you make a five cycle cam?" Wow. I said, gee, I could make money with that. A four-cycle engine, and I'm going to make it better with an extra cycle. And by golly, uh, I held back on that, and I used that with a good publicity stunt. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, 
Well, yeah, go ahead. We are out of time, but I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. And I'm definitely, Willis, we'll have to probably, you know, your birthday's in July, so maybe we'll have you back on in July. We'll celebrate your 101 birthday. What do you think about that? Oh, we'll try and do that. And and you can tell us some more stories. All right. Well, Ed, thank you very much for hanging out. I want to thank my very special guest, Ed Iskandarian, the cam father, the legend, the the just you know isky cams man that was it you know everybody raced it nhra drag racing road racing racing boats everything everybody had a, an isky cam i ran isky cams i think i still have some isky cam uh, bumper stickers uh window stickers I always wait for someone to ask me what makes you think you are the cam father yeah what and i said well no one else wanted to be <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much and good night. And thank you uh, for hanging out with us here again, uh, Ed. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I enjoy it. Very much. Thank you. And all the best to you. And I hope you're going to be around for another 100 years. So let's just see what happens. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. I want to thank my very special guest, Ed Iskandarian, the cam father, 100 years old and counting and continuing on. That's pretty impressive. And he's on top of everything. That's great. Hey, guys, don't forget, next uh, week, February 17th, 18th, the ninth annual Vintage Truck Show up in Leesburg, Florida. Google uh, Vintage Florida Trucks. Vintage Trucks of Florida. Oh, yeah. Vintage Trucks of Florida. Anyway, hey, you know where to find us every Tuesday night between 10, no, between 7 and 8 p.m. on between 7 and 8. Yeah, that's right. For the most fascinating legendary games in motorsport, don't forget Amelia Island's coming up here first week in March. Boca's coming up. All kinds of stuff. This weekend, Leadfoot City. Big Shelby deal's going on. Hey, I want to see you guys in some of your cars. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.